Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results with your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is Rick Smith. Rick is a CFO experienced with leading high growth VC and PE backed companies with revenues in the $20 million to $300 million range and has led multiple companies through successful exits. Rick's background spans a variety of industries, including software as a service, education technology, healthcare services, advertising marketing services, and retail. Having been a controller, FP&A leader, and a CFO, Rick is deeply knowledgeable in all areas of accounting and finance, including day-to-day accounting and processes, financial systems, buy-side and sell-side M&A, financings, capital raises slash recapitalizations, and international operations. And Rick has extensive experience managing areas such as human resources, facilities, data and analytics, project management, and technology infrastructure. Rick, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. Today, we're going to be discussing the role of CFO, how it's evolved over time, as well as how it evolves over the life cycle of a business. We'll also be taking a look at some specific challenges that some of our listeners might be facing today or sometime in the near future. So let's get started. Sounds good. First, let's spend a few minutes talking about you and your career progression. How did you get to where you are today? Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. If you go all the way back to college, I, I always wanted to be a CFO, but I didn't want to be a CFO for a company that was uh, super large. I always wanted to be a CFO for companies that were more at the growth stage. And this sounds strange, but I really didn't want to approach it from the accounting side either. So out of undergrad and after getting my MBA from uh, Dartmouth, I took a variety of roles where I could focus on using systems and data to drive operational improvements. And eventually, I literally fell into a controller role, which helped me bulk up my accounting knowledge. And uh, I eventually was promoted at that company to the CFO position. And since then, I've been a CFO for several different companies in different industries. And I usually stick around until there's some sort of transaction, which is often a good time for a CFO to exit. So overall, I would describe myself as an operationally focused services-based CFO for VC and PE backed companies. Yeah. Wow. It sounds like you've had some great experience. So as you look back throughout your career, are there particular stories that stand out in your mind as turning points? Yeah, as I said, my background was much more on the financial operations and FP&A side. And one day I interviewed with a a $60 million uh, in revenues company to be their controller. And I had never done a journal entry or an account (laughs) reconciliation in my life. But somehow I went through the interview process and they didn't ask me the right questions to figure out if I was a good accountant. And I ended up getting the job. And as it turns out, as it turns out, I'm a good accountant. Uh, You know, maybe that company during the interview process saw this in me and I just didn't know it yet. But it all worked out very well. I was with that company for 10 years, eventually becoming the CFO. And we grew that business from 60 million in revenues to 300 million in revenues. We went global. We did tons of acquisitions. It all worked out really well. And it was a great, great training ground for me. So anyway, when I got there, the company's accounting was a bit of a mess. I mean, they had grown rapidly and they had just done a systems conversion and had done it poorly. So I I literally, I didn't know anything about accounting, but I went account by account and I reconciled each one. And it was probably hundreds of accounts. And I basically taught myself how to do accounting. And it turns out it's all math. 
And much of the uh, accounting math is actually pretty logical. I mean, who knew, right? Accounting is mostly logical math. <laughs> and uh, although it was a very difficult way to start a job, like I never left that building for about a year. Yeah. Um, it, it proved to be incredibly valuable because it essentially forced me to figure out how day-to-day -day accounting is done at a micro level all on my own without a whole lot of help. Now looking backwards, because I've done FP&A and accounting at a nuts and bolts level, it's been very helpful to me. I know how the work gets done because at some point I've done most of the work. And I think to be a good CFO, you have to bring deep knowledge on both the FP&A and accounting sides. And it's important to know how everything works. So that variety in my background has really helped me get there. You know, historically, I think a lot of folks came up the controller side to become a CFO. And so they really had the accounting knowledge kind of nailed down, but then they would they would sit in the CFO seat and, and really haven't done a lot on the FP&A side or M&A or other stuff, operational stuff. And so I think it's sometimes it's hard for those folks to, to transition from just being a great, great super accountant to being a CFO. But conversely, if you've just come up on the FP&A side and you don't bring a lot of accounting depth, I mean, that's not good either because, you know, probably where you're going to have problems is if there are significant accounting problems. So I think I'm fortunate that I spent a lot of time on both sides and was able to bring that to the table once. I got to the CFO position. Yeah, it sounds like your experience as controller was definitely trial by fire. Yeah, it's funny looking back. I mean, I, I literally had never done a journal entry and then uh, just had to figure it out. And again, super messy books. When I joined, uh, I can't remember what month, but we were heading into the audit and pretty quickly it was apparent we didn't have a chance at getting through that audit unless a significant amount of effort was put in to clean up the books, which is what I did. And again, I, I didn't leave that building for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> I imagine you didn't. So tell us about Parchment. What is it that they do and what were you brought in to accomplish? Yeah, Parchment's one of those businesses you probably never think about, but uh, it, it serves a very important purpose. So Parchment is the most widely adopted digital credential service, allowing learners and academic institutions and employers to request and verify and share credentials, st stuff such as transcripts and diplomas in simple and secure ways. So most high school students will use Parchment to submit their transcripts to colleges, and then Parchment handles the transcripts of most higher ed students, and then Parchment produces electronic or paper diplomas for uh, many graduating students. So again, it's a business you probably haven't thought about. And if you have uh, high school or college age kids, they've probably in some way interacted with Parchment, whether or not they knew they were doing so. But it's a great niche to be in. So cumulatively, 100 million credentials have been exchanged using Parchment's digital platform. And we're a global company. We operate in a variety of countries. From a size standpoint, I'll be vague because we are private, but our annual recurring revenues is in the 70 million to $100 million range, and we are PE backed. And how long uh, have I they been around? They've been around a long time, actually. Um, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's uh, it's it's been a while, and I've been with the company now for about eight months. And to answer your second question, I know you asked, you know, really, what did they hire me to do? Yeah. And the key things they're asking me to accomplish are, number one, to automate a lot of the reporting and get away from manual spreadsheets being sent around. Number two, to play a key role in M&A. Historically, the, the company has done some M&A, and, and it's going to be M&A heavy going forward. As I said, I joined the company eight months ago. We've already closed on one transaction and we're continuing to look at others. And then number three is more operational, but it's really to help the company get better as it gets bigger by driving efficiencies and scale. So just out of curiosity, as, as you look at automation, like how do you decide what should be automated and what should not? Because I know, yeah. you know that's like a lot of companies are moving in that direction. 
Mm -hmm. My goal is always um, really one thing, and that is I want the senior team and other key leaders to have an equivalent level of knowledge as to what is going right with the business and what needs to be focused on. And so for me, I'm focusing on stuff that gets pushed to leaders, so they have to interact with it. And then we'll follow up with them in leadership meetings or in monthly business reviews or whatever to make sure that they are utilizing that stuff. And then whatever stuff that's getting pushed to them that they're going to look at, it should have drill down capabilities where they should be able to drill down and try to figure out what strategies are useful to them specifically in their different areas to improve operations. So there's no right way to do this. There's a lot of great software out there. A lot of it depends on what are you willing to spend and how complicated of a project are you willing to take on? But for me, that is really ultimately the goal is the CFO shouldn't be the fount of all knowledge of what's going well and what's not going well within the company. It should be, that should be distributed and shared among the leadership team in an equivalent way. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. That's a good way to look at it. And I know technology is a big part of it, but as we look at the role of CFO, how has it evolved over the last decade? Yeah. So, you know, decades ago, the CFO role was primarily an accounting job. And in the last decade, as the CFO job evolved, quality accounting became table stakes. And the CFO was asked to implement great systems and great reporting. And now it's funny because it's evolved even more. So having good accounting and good systems and good reporting are all table stakes. So the CFO must use all this to drive efficiencies and scale as the business grows. And as I said, our investors are looking at me to help us get better as we get bigger. And by the way, I won't be successful in any of this unless I can work cross-functionally. So decades ago, the CFO and the CFO's team were off in a corner just doing basic back office accounting work. And now the CFO and team are front and center and helping to drive value. So for all of my uh, folks, they really have to be able to operate super well cross-functionally. I don't want anybody kind of operating in a box where they're just spreadsheeting on their own without taking inputs from leaders throughout the business. So they need to be able to work across the business to get information, kind of synthesize it and push it out. And that helps us all collectively make decisions as to how we want to solve stuff. So it's, it's really evolved a lot from when I first started to now, and I'm sure it's going to continue to evolve. But as I said, our, our investors are very much looking at me to be an operational CFO and help drive efficiencies as we grow. And that just, it wasn't like that, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. So just for companies that might still be operating in a siloed fashion, how do you break down barriers between <laughs> departments? Yeah, hard to do. It really is. And it depends on the culture and how willing people are. And honestly, when I'm interviewing with a company, I focus a lot on me coming in as an outsider and trying to bridge silos. How easily will that be accepted within a culture? Because that ultimately could be a limiting factor for my success and ultimately the company's success. So I'm, when I'm interviewing, yeah, you know, certainly I'm, I'm selling them on me, but I'm also learning a lot about their culture and trying to figure out, do I have a shot at success here? I think as far as most CFOs go, I'm very friendly. I try to emphasize to folks that I'm here to help. But the other thing I like to emphasize is, is that I really am here as a facilitator and a project manager in a lot of ways. So if we can all acknowledge there's a challenge here, how do we collectively work together to solve problems? The thing I always say is I don't like to be, most CFOs are seen as the no person. You know, can I go hire more staff? No. Can I go do this project? No. And I don't want to be making those decisions. I want to assemble the leadership team 
and provide them with information so that we can collectively prioritize how we want to invest our, our money next in people or in systems or whatever. So one company I was at, there really wasn't a methodology for deciding if we had enough money to go hire one person, where should that person go within the company? And if the CFO is making that decision, maybe it's a little bit informed, but a lot of times, I hate to say it, the squeaky wheel will get the grease. So the department that complains the most that their people are overworked and, and needs more people will probably get the next hire. And that's not a good way to do it. So I liked to assemble, it was every other week, we would assemble the leaders of the company and we would really talk through all of our potential new hires and how do we prioritize them? And, and is there a role where we can shift somebody internally into that role? And we would do the same thing with significant expenses too. So if we had a list of uh, unbudgeted expenses that we had to consider spending money on, how do we prioritize those? Well, let's collectively get together and, and, and do it. And that helps us get buy-in from everybody across the business. Yeah, that sounds very collaborative. Yeah. I, I, again, I try to see myself as a facilitator and a project manager versus a decision maker. It's not that I don't want to make decisions. It's just, I think at some point it's, it's wrong for the CFO to constantly be the yes or no person, especially when it comes to areas where the CFO might not have a lot of uh, knowledge about. Yeah. I guess better to empower your people to make yeah. good choices. Yeah, exactly. So how is the role or how does the role of a CFO change as a company evolves? Yeah, it changes a lot. And I've operated at a lot of different stages. I mean, I've been with, a, I've been a CFO of a company as small as 20 million and as large as 300 million. So I've, I've seen companies at lots of different stages and the role is almost completely different at different stages. So let's start at the venture stage. I mean, venture stage companies often have a conundrum and that is they can't afford a quality CFO and they might not have enough work to occupy a full-time CFO. And so really what they often end up doing is they just try to get by with a bookkeeper. And this is a mistake. So first of all, big accounting mistakes are often made when you have just a bookkeeper doing the work. They're not really focused on doing the accounting like a public company would. They're probably not getting audited. So big mistakes are probably made at this stage. And then good records probably aren't being kept. And especially if there are systems conversions is, you know, somebody often, uh, a VC, companies often going to start on a small-time accounting system, and then maybe they'll move to a big-time accounting system. And often, the records will be lost in those transitions. And then you might cycle through some staff members at that point in time. And so a lot of uh, just context and legacy knowledge will walk out the door. So all of this usually comes to a head because at some point, if the company starts to grow and they get investors who are very serious about the quality of the accounting and, and if you need audited financials and if you want to take out a bank loan and they require audited financials, somebody's going to have to fix a real mess and they're going to have to go backwards for several years and, and fix what's been done. And again, if the record keeping wasn't done well and context has been lost and, and you, you had a lot of legacy knowledge transition out as, as folks have cycled out of the business, it's a real big job coming in and doing a multi-year accounting cleanup. So at the venture stage, I, I would strongly recommend if a company can find a way to do it, to somehow find at least a part-time CFO who is super skilled, who can oversee a lot of this stuff to make sure it's being done at a high quality level. And a lot of venture firms are willing to invest in that because it helps protect their investment. The other thing too at this stage is a CFO can help with capital raises and managing the company's cap table. And this is all really important stuff. A cap table is basically a list of all the investors. And that sounds like a simple thing, right? But if you have options programs and stuff like that, cap tables can become really complicated. 
I've inherited many cap tables as a CFO, and I would say in almost every case, there's something wrong on that cap table, and it's hard to find. And so uh, those are kind of scary moments. Um, and so having a CFO who can manage all this stuff is super helpful. Again, the biggest challenge here is, is a small company needs to figure out how to pay for a CFO and how to attract someone who's very much willing to do a lot of the day-to-day -day work and be a player coach. And finding that person is not easy, particularly if you want to find someone with lots of experience, and then paying for it isn't easy either. So that's kind of the, the, grow, uh, the venture stage. The growth stage is really different, and the skill sets you need from your CFO become so much broader. So first of all, the CFO is going to need to make sure the accounting's done to a very high standard. And at this point, you're probably audited, and if not, it's going to have to, you're going to have to get to audit quality financials. The CFO is going to have to make sure the FP&A is built out in a way so that it's insightful and actionable for a broad group of leaders. And because the business is growing and it might be changing a lot in terms of getting into new products or new markets, the CFO needs to make sure the systems are flexible and scalable. And at this stage, you're probably gonna have a lot of different systems. So if you really wanna build out your FP&A correctly, how do you synthesize the data between those systems so that you can build out uh, really actionable FP&A? And then at some point, there's probably going to be some M&A and integrations and managing those effectively is uh, super challenging. And then at some point, the company's probably going to start taking on debt and you're going to have to manage cash and the banking side are, are, is going to get more and more complicated. And this can become a problem. I mean, if you take up too much debt and there's some volatility in the business's uh, earnings, then you could have uh, loan defaults as a problem. As I said, you're going to get into new markets and, and product expansions. And so working with across the company cross-functionally in pricing and in just managing this whole process and collections and everything there is tricky. And then international. <laughs> if you get into international markets, the complexity, you take all the items I just went through and double or triple the complexity. So those are a lot of the operational challenges. And then at some point, there may be inbound interest to buy the company. And a company is going to want a good CFO to represent the company in the sell-side process. And sell-side processes are a real unique skill set that if you haven't done it, there's a lot to learn in terms of how do you effectively manage the sell side process if you're a CFO. And then the other thing is, is that if the CFO has not done a good job in any of the stuff I've, I've mentioned earlier, that's probably going to be readily apparent to a savvy buyer. And that's going to reduce the confidence of the buyer in this process. And it could impact the company's valuation. So again, at the VC stage, the role of the CFO might have some variability to what the CFO has to be good at. But at the growth stage, the CFO is going to have to be good at like 20 things. Mm -hmm. And the job really expands. And the only way a CFO at a, at a growth stage can be successful is if they can build out a good team. So then the CFO can span and all this stuff will get done well. So one thing I say all the time is if you give me three or four really good people with good attitudes, we can move mountains. At the venture stage, a CFO can probably get by with one or two good people. But at the growth stage, the CFO will need at least three or four good people on the team. So then getting past the growth stage, if a company isn't going to IPO, then they're most likely going to be acquired by larger and larger PE firms. And probably with every acquisition, there will be more and more debt put on the company's books. And as a part of that debt, and as a part of moving up to larger and larger PE firms, there's probably going to be even more M&A. And the PE firms are going to push for a lot more efficiencies as the company grows and then through M&A. So if stuff wasn't done well in prior stages, it all builds up and eventually it's going to come out. So it'll become a real problem now to fix stuff that wasn't done in prior stages. And it's going to have to get fixed. And this will 
continue to become heavier and heavier lifting as the company grows, because fixing all this stuff just gets harder and harder as a company gets bigger and more complex. So the growth stage is, is a really challenging stage, and this stage now starts to amp things up a bit. And when you factor in the amount of debt on a company's books, there just is not a large margin for error. And so because of this, at this stage, PE firms tend to be very aggressive about managing their CFOs. And honestly, they're very quick to switch out a CFO if they think they need to. To do an IPO, the role changes a lot. The CFO role swings back to having a heavy focus on accounting and forecasting due to public reporting requirements. And so it, it honestly, it's a very different job than when a company is PE owned. So, you know, I get this question all the time. Could a CFO start at the VC stage and stay with the company and ride it all the way to later stage private equity or to an IPO. And honestly, there, there might be some magical unicorns out there who can do all this, mm-hmm. um, but I would say the odds are probably against it. In most cases, at a minimum, I would guess a company will need different CFOs at the VC and early growth stages, and then during uh, the high growth and, and uh, buyout stage, and then for an IPO. The CFO role just changes so much during these stages that I think it'll be hard to find a single person who is truly best in class at each stage. And good investors, they're going to want that. They're going to want a best-in-class CFO at each stage. And so they really won't have a problem switching out CFOs if they think they can upgrade as each stage comes into play. Yeah, it sounds like just way too many skill sets for one person to possess or be good at. Yeah, absolutely. But what about like, you know, hiring people up around you that that can fill some of those gaps? Is it possible that one person could if they were able to put good teams in place along the way? It's helpful. It's really helpful. But, you know, it does kind of filter down like the controller you have at a venture stage might not be the controller you want at a growth stage, who might not be what the controller you want at a buyout stage and who definitely might not be the controller you want at an IPO stage. So it, it kind of filters down to the teams, too. And I think the other thing is, is that best in class issue. So I'm a much better CFO now than I was 10 years ago, just based on the experiences that I've had. And so no matter what, I think a PE firm would look at me 10 years ago and me now, and they would have swapped me out 10 years ago for the me now, just because I bring so much more experience to the table than I did then. Same person, just different experience. And again, when there's a lot of money at stake, these the PE folks, they're going to want best in class. And so they'll, they'll switch somebody out. They will. Yep. So as a CFO, you should probably not take that too personally. Yeah, you can't. You, you honestly can't. And I feel comfortable knowing when I've kind of tapped myself out. When I get to a certain point, I realize it's not what I love and it's not what I'm great at. And I want to be successful every day. I want to feel good about the work I'm doing. So if something starts to get to a point where I don't feel comfortable, I have no problem saying, hey, why, why don't we uh, figure out a way for me to leave and, and bring on somebody else and I'll go do something that's more in my comfort zone. You have to drop the ego to start to to get to that point. You have to say, I'm not trying to prove anything here. I want to enjoy the work I'm doing and I want to be good at it and I want to be successful at it. So maybe this isn't the right stage for me anymore. But you have to be kind of true to yourself and and uh, be willing to admit that there's probably somebody else better out there for this stage. And honestly, there's nothing wrong with that. Just you'll be happier if you move along and find something that's a better fit for your skill set. Yeah, it's great advice. So switching gears a bit. So one of the fallouts of COVID is that many businesses right now are having to re-examine their office space. Uh, I know you recently spent a great deal of time on this yourself. So what advice can you offer? 
Yeah, it's it's funny. My, so my the company I joined eight months ago, we have five leases under our belts right now. And by the end of this year, I'll have redone in some way all five leases. So dealing with real estate matters is a much bigger portion of a CFO job than anybody would ever think. But in COVID has really thrown a wrench into things. So with COVID, some businesses are saying that they're going to move completely virtual. And will this work over the long term, especially as a company grows and changes and acquires other companies? I know lots of people are pushing the 100% virtual thing, but at this point, I'm a bit of a skeptic. Yeah. I do think that there are challenges in maintaining your culture, particularly as you get bigger and if you're acquisitive, and it's very difficult for new employees or young employees who need mentorship and visibility to be 100% remote all of the time. So said another way, you know, there, there are things you can probably do when you have 100 employees that won't be as effective as when you have 1,000 employees or when you do some M&A and try to mix together some different cultures. So again, I know there's a lot of companies out there saying, hey, we're going 100% virtual. I, I think you can do it when you're small. I'm a bit of a skeptic that when you're really large, it will be effective for you. But as far as COVID affects your real estate strategy, it's still such a fluid situation that, you know, I, I think a lot of companies are putting out bold proclamations like we're going to be virtual for forever. It's still to me a very fluid situation and it's really hard to know how this is going to play out over the long term. So 12 months from now, will COVID have a major impact on our day-to-day -day lives? It may or it may not. And I'm super hesitant to make a long-term decision on something that may or may not impact us over the long term. So for now, I'm kind of trying to be a little bit cautious when dealing in real estate matters. But at the same time, I'm still pursuing a strategy where I've got to think about the long-term kind of goals for the business. And so I'm still kind of managing real estate stuff as if COVID is not going to be a long-term issue. So because of that, let's discuss all of this exclusive of COVID's impact. And as I said, you know, when you think of the CFO role, who thinks about office space, right? I mean, it's, it's, it definitely is important because unless you're subleasing some, another company's unwanted office space, you're going to have to build out space within a landlord's building. And that landlord will probably want you to sign at least a seven-year lease. Sometimes you can sign a five-year lease. You'll pay for that privilege. So most leases are seven years and some are as long as 10 years. The hard part is, is you really don't know how much space your business will need five, six, seven years from now. And you might not even know how much space you're going to need in a couple of years. And building out office space is an expensive project. So if you screw it up, it can weigh down your financials big time for years to come. And getting out of a lease that you signed is almost impossible. Buying out a lease is extremely expensive. And subleasing your space may or may not be successful. So all in uh, as a CFO, you know, among scary things that I do, signing a lease, that's, that's very scary stuff. So ideally, when I think about real estate, I try to find all the flexibility I can within the situation. But some of that also depends on what your investor's goals are. So naturally, a landlord will charge you less in monthly rent in exchange for a longer term lease. And then also when you build out space, the build out costs get spread across the term of the lease. So all in, if you sign a longer term lease, your monthly expenses will be lower, but you'll have less flexibility to get out. So if your investors want to drive EBITDA, and that's their sole focus, they might be fine with signing a long term lease to focus on driving down the monthly expense. But then you're locked into a long term lease, which is scary. And when investors go to sell a company, a buyer might not be excited to take on a long term lease. So at the end of the day, it really is up to the investors. Do they want low monthly expenses and little flexibility or higher expenses, but some flexibility? It's up to them. And a lot of their thinking on this topic will likely be driven by how long they plan to hold on to the company. And it's funny, you know, how you might approach a lease 
could be very different if an investor uh, is looking to sell the company within 12 months or within 24 months. I mean, you might have different strategies right there. And so really understanding what are their goals and aligning your real estate strategy with that is important. The other piece of it is, though, forget the lease stuff. It's no matter what, when you design and build out a space, you should always think about what happens in both upside and downside scenarios. So regarding upside, you know, what are we going to do if we outgrow our space? Ideally, when you sign a lease, you know, a lot of companies find it quaint to find like a cool hip house or old building or warehouse space for the, for the company. But I would advise against doing that. My advice, and it sounds super generic but try to find space in the biggest building you can find with the biggest floor plate which means the size of each floor. Then if you need more space, there might be adjacent space that you can lease that you can connect to. And if not, there may be space directly above you or there may be space directly below you that you can connect to. And if not, as a final fallback, there may be space elsewhere in the building. These are all better options than having to spread your business across different buildings if you're growing. In a downside scenario, you should design your space in a way that a portion can be easily carved off and subleased if you need to. And you should design that space in a fairly generic style so that a broad group of sublessors might be interested in it if you have to go and sublease the space. So overall, I like to look at this and I say it's a lot like getting married. Nobody uh, wants to think about what happens if things don't work out like you had planned. But the reality is that things might not work out how you had planned. So you need to have a downside plan. Yeah, I imagine that a lot of startups want to do that cool hip space to Mm -hmm. ultimately their disadvantage in the long run. Yeah. And look, I know employees love it. Here's the funny thing, though, is a lot of times a company will take cool hip space without factoring in how long it takes for their employees to get to that cool hip space. And I'll bet you if you surveyed employees, most of them would say, I'd rather have a shorter commute to more generic space than a long, crappy commute to really cool space. Absolutely. So switching gears again. So as a CFO who's had to work through internet international acquisitions, what advice can you offer those out there who might be grappling with this right now? <laughs> you know, it's funny as a business student, you know, I, everybody wanted to, to major in international business, right? Yeah. It sounds super glamorous. And I'm sure listeners are envisioning first class flights and expensive meals in Paris. And, and that all sounds great. But the reality is that when you're buying something outside of the U.S., Take the complexity of a U.S.-based acquisition and easily double or triple it. So with every global market you go into, and let's say you buy a company that's in a bunch of global markets, you need to understand the specific details of each country's labor laws, data privacy laws, taxation. In some companies, or in some cases, you might be able to find a a global bank that you can use in multiple countries, but otherwise you might have to find an in-market bank. And I got to tell you, it's gotten very difficult to remotely open up bank accounts in foreign countries due to the the fear that governments are worried about fraud and money laundering. And God forbid, if you want to accept electronic payments or cash payments in those markets, those types of accounts are, they've gotten really difficult to open without flying to that market and meeting in person with the bank. I mean, I'll tell you one funny story. I was CFO of a business and we were going to open something in, I think it was Singapore. And we weren't going to channel a lot of volume through the account, maybe $200,000. And um, when I talked to, so we were going to have a small business essentially in Singapore. And when I talked to the bank, they said, well, you have two options. Number one is you have to fly to Singapore and meet with us in person so that we can get to know you and make sure you're legitimate. And I said, but this is going to be a small business for us. I mean, the cost of me taking a week of my time and flying to Singapore, that's going to exceed the amount of EBITDA we're going to get from that business for a year or two. And they said, fine. Your other option is you can deposit 2 million 
US dollars in our bank as a kind of a form of security. And, and I said, did you get the decimal right? $2 million, I'm gonna channel $200,000 in revenues through your, your bank. No, no, you need to deposit $2 million. Okay, so no, neither of these solutions was very viable. The other thing you have to think through is you, you do have to set up intercompany agreements between all the countries you're operating in, and you have to keep your accounting properly between all these countries, because a lot of these countries are nervous about, are you doing stuff to minimize taxes? And, and naturally, each country wants to collect the amount of taxes that they're owed. And you have to have an accounting system that can handle multiple currencies. And I mean, honestly, I could go on and on and on. There's so many things to think through here. And, and time zones. Don't forget about time zones. So we recently, we bought a company who has employees that are in Europe and Australia. And so if you, if you measure the time zone span between Australia, Europe, and, and us in the US, it's about a 15-hour time span. So it's almost impossible to schedule a call where folks from both locations from Europe and Australia can be on the calls yeah. due to the time span. It's really, really complicated. So how do I not navigate this stuff? Because at some point, most companies are going to go international and you're going to have to find ways to, na to navigate it. The first thing I do, honestly, is I set the expectations for everyone that it will be difficult. I let our investors know this is two to three times more challenging than buying a company in the US. I let our leadership know just because I don't want anybody to go in and think it's going to be easy. It won't be. And then Having prior experience with specific markets certainly helps. Like I've operated a lot in the UK. So if we open something in the UK, I generally know what, what needs to happen. But if you don't have that, the one thing that helps now that really didn't exist 15 or 20 years ago is there are a lot of third parties who help companies operate globally. And again, these did not exist before. So for example, now you have a lot of global PEOs. So these are companies that instead of you hiring staff, they'll hire staff for you in the market they're not going to pick the staff. You're going to pick who, who they hire, but it's going to be on their payroll. And then they'll handle all the local filings and taxes and stuff for, for those individuals. So there are a lot of global PEOs now who, if you need to hire and pay just a couple of employees in a country, it's a lot easier than going country by country and trying to set up your own payroll and your own filings and stuff like that. So let's say I need to hire salespeople in a bunch of European countries. Let's say five people in five different countries. So one person per country. It's a heck of a lot easier for me to pay a global PEO to handle the payroll for each of those individual people in five countries than it is for me to figure out how to get it done or to contract with like a, a lot of times you have to use like a local payroll firm or a local accounting firm to do payroll in a country. Heck of a lot easier to deal with a single global PEO to accomplish all this than to try to approach it individually like that. So if you're going to hire 50 or 100 employees in a country, you might take a different approach because you'll pay for the privilege of using a, a global PEO. But you know, if it's a small number of people, there are options out, out there that'll help you save a lot of time, money, and effort. So I honestly, when I go into a foreign country, I look to outsource as much as I can just to keep it simple. And then if we're going to get size and scale in a given market, then I might look at each different kind of accounting or finance function and figure out if I should bring that in-house. I am very overt with investors and with our leadership where I'll say, it'll take me more time to figure out how to get one employee who's working in Rome set up and paid than it would take 100 people who are working in Phoenix to get set up and paid. So just given how complex it is to go international, when is it the right time to make that jump? Yeah, it's, I, I would push it out as much as I can. If you have runway in the United States, I would focus on that first. And then there, you know, there are markets that are probably easier to enter if you're located in the United States, something like Canada. A lot of times the English speaking countries are a little bit easier, but um, 
I was at a company where we were uh, 20 million in revenues, solely domestic, and we started to prospect a lot more in Europe. And when I joined the company, that was one of the first questions I asked is, why are we doing that? And we ended up not doing it. We ended up putting a stop to that because I said, there's a lot more runway in the US and operating in a foreign country with uh, data privacy issues and stuff like that. It's going to be really challenging for us. So at our size and scale, it really did not make sense. And that's why we stopped doing that. Again, I would focus on growing the United States for as long as I can before I would get into international markets. The one good thing if you buy companies in international markets is, you know, a lot of investors look at market size and TAM. And so total addressable market. So they're going to look at you and they're going to get more excited about you if you're in markets that have a lot of growth potential. And so if you think from an investor valuation standpoint, that'll help you a lot, then it could make sense to go into international markets earlier rather than later. But if you're a smallish US-based company, there's a lot of runway here for you to grow and you're not that great at operating executional details in the US. It's only going to get harder and harder to do it outside of the, the borders of the US. So I would defer that as long as possible. Great advice. So as a CFO, what are your greatest concerns these days? What's yeah. keeping you up at night? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. This sounds generic, but it really is always making sure that I have the right team working on the right things. I literally get pulled in 20 different directions in any given day. And the only way I can be successful at all this is if I have the right team who can make uh, take the ball and run with it. And we move super fast. And uh, you just have to be able to run super fast. And honestly, you have to have a fairly thick skin because you might put in a lot of effort on a project that We'll, we'll change directions on because something has materially changed and you have to be willing to roll with the punches, not take it personally and say, okay, all right, what's next? It's finding that great group of generalists, kind of like me in a lot of ways, generalists who are just really willing to take on random projects that pop up because they will and are focused a lot more collectively on what are we trying to accomplish as a group and not as individuals and really focusing on our broader success rather than individual success. I really try to look out for my people in, in terms of titling and comp and stuff like that. So I want to, I want them to not focus on that next promotion, that next title, that next raise. I, I want them to have confidence in me that if everything is going super well, I'll absolutely hundred percent take care of them. And if they're a great member of the team, I want them to work with me for forever. I'll handle all that stuff. So they don't have to worry about the career stuff, but in return, what I need from them is that great, gelling with other folks on the team, that willingness to step in when random things pop up. They have to focus on nailing the details because I don't have the time to check people's work. And they just have to be an overall kind of good participant and good, good contributor to the team. That stuff is super important to me. And as I said, if I have three or four amazing people, I think we can move mountains. The hardest part is finding those three or four amazing people who want to join you on the journey of building something awesome. And Honestly, there's no ego here. I'm not focused on anything else. All I want to do is build something awesome with a great group of people and then look backwards with that group of people and say, my God, can you believe what we just built over the last three years or 10 years or whatever? So it's a generic response, right? Building a great team. Everybody will say that, but God, I really mean it. I mean, systems projects and challenges will come and go. Accounting challenges will come and go. We can beat all that stuff with a great group of people. I feel super comfortable with that. The second thing is, is that, you know, in my role, there's always a lot of acquisitions and being successful in M&A, it sounds glamorous and it sounds easy, but it's really a difficult road that's fraught with risk. And it's even more difficult in the current era where valuations are sky high and you fund a lot of deals with debt. You just don't have a lot of uh, margin for error. 
And when M&A goes well, it can result in just a magical transformation for a business. It can really help you quickly accelerate into new products or new markets. But when M&A goes sideways, the situation can devolve into being a big distraction and a financial drag. And it also erodes the confidence from your investors. And as with a lot of things, M&A, it sounds super glamorous, but success is really found in executing the details. And there are plenty of studies out there that show that the majority of M&A leads to negative value created. Yet when you close on an acquisition, you are 100% certain that it was a good move. So reconciling between the excitement of closing the deal and actually realizing positive value from the deal is when reality sets in and you separate out companies that have developed a skill at acquiring and integrating companies and others that close deals without a game plan or a skill set to do M&A. Yeah, I imagine that finding that magical M&A uh, <laughs> is, is not the, the norm. <laughs> yeah, it, I have so many success stories where I will tell you it was transformational for our business. But then I can tell you other stories where the process just didn't go well. And for whatever reason, operationally, we got bogged down and it was really hard to get value out of what we bought. It's a lot trickier than it sounds. Yeah, I'm sure there's just a lot to consider when you're merging or acquiring a company. Well, it's like a lot of things too. You know, the seller is trying to sell you on them and why you should pay a premium valuation, but the buyer is also trying to sell the seller on why they should uh, sell the company to the buyer. And then if you're in an auction process, which is a lot of larger M&A, there's going to be an investment bank who's going to drive an auction process. You know, just like buying something on eBay, a lot of times you have a little bit of buyer's remorse because you're nervous that you overpaid for what you ended up with. And in an auction, you often do overpay. And so kind of... um, Doing a good job in matching what you paid to what you'll get out of the deal financially, those are tricky things to manage and things can go sideways uh, if anything in that process goes wrong. So now that we're into the second half of 2021, what's one goal, either personal or professional, that you're hoping to achieve this year? Yeah, I'll I'll give you one on each side, professionally and personally. So professionally, as I mentioned, I joined my current employer about eight months ago, and we've been implementing my vision for how our FP&A should work. And I talked about it earlier, how it should be interactive. The the leadership team should should all be operating from a consistent set of information that's being pushed to them, and then we're collectively making decisions from that. We're implementing that vision right now, and I think it'll be fully rolled out by year end, and I'm hoping that that'll be an active portion of our budget process. We've made huge progress on this. And so far, I've been really excited with where we're at. But, you know, there's still a lot of game to be played and and we got to finish up the project. But professionally, by year end, that's one of the things I'm most excited to to see kind of come to fruition. Because I think when I was interviewing, you know, everybody had a general idea of what I was trying to get at. But now that they're starting to see how it actually looks, I think there's a lot of excitement and I'm excited about it, too. And so, again, I'm, I'm excited to finish up that project so that we can start to benefit from those efforts. Personally, and this might sound funny, but I've been writing a book on exactly the type of stuff that we've covered today, the role of the CFO. And I've been working on it for a couple of years. I just do it here and there in my spare time. And I've written most of it, but I'd love to have it finished by early next year. And I'll, I'll push it on, on LinkedIn, and I'm not trying to sell a million copies. I'm hoping that you know I'll sell a few to people who are interested in stuff like we've talked about today. But really, the goal is to help educate anyone interested in the various nooks and crannies of doing this type of job. And honestly, as you've heard me on this call, I really do try to strip away any of the imagined glamour that people might have in the CFO role. And I focus on uh, trying to help give an overview of the 20 things you need to be good at and how to think through those things. A lot of times, there aren't there isn't a single right answer. So So it's really kind of weighing a couple of different potential right answers and picking a path. And I want to provide folks who 
read the book with some just kind of some processes to think through like real estate or M&A or international stuff to think through what are some of the concerns, what are some of the pitfalls and how can they push the odds in their favor to potentially be more successful? That's an amazing goal. I had a, a guest on a few months ago who had just authored a book and he he mentioned that everybody at some point in their lifetime should try to write a book that you'll learn more yeah. about yourself in that process than just about anything else. Yeah, I've always enjoyed writing. And for me, it's I'm trying to make it a fun read because you know, at face value, here's a CFO talking about what he does day to day. That doesn't sound very exciting. But I try to pepper the book with a lot of actual stories, including some that are uh, truly wacky or hilarious that have happened in my in my long career doing this stuff because random weird things do pop up here and there. And uh, sometimes things don't go exactly how you planned. And so I want to I want to be very upfront and honest and talk about a few of those things and tell some funny stories to keep the reader engaged. But uh, you know, I think for folks who want to be a CFO, for controllers, for financial analysts, for private equity folks who may not know what the job looks like day in and day out, you know, or MBA students, I think it might be a fun read and it, you know, won't be incredibly wrong, I think, or long. I think when I'm done, it'll probably be, I don't know, 250 pages. But uh, I think it'll be a good read for somebody to just get a background as to what does the job actually look like day in and day out? And what are those 20 things you need to be knowledgeable about? You will definitely have to let me know when that is completed. Yeah, will do. Will do. Rick, thank you so much for being my guest today. No problem. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. I've uh, loved speaking with you and hearing about your experiences and all of the resulting insights. Um, so to all of our guests out there, please tune in next week. And until then, take care of yourselves. If you're ready to boost efficiency and streamline your accounting processes at significant cost savings, it's time to talk with Personiv. Their people-powered solutions have transformed the delivery of back office tasks and general accounting functions for decades, partnering with clients to provide everything from accounts payable to payroll services. See what Personiv can do for you by visiting personiv.com. You've been listening to CFO Weekly presented by Personiv. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out personive.com. Thanks for listening.